Matthew 28:19 says to go and make disciples of all nations. Join Community Bible Church as they host a five-day missions conference into all the world, October 17th to the 21st. This conference will include a musical tribute to missions featuring the CBC Choir and Orchestra, a message from radio pastor Alistair Begg, and you'll hear about the sharing of God's Word into all the world through 100-plus missionaries. The Into All the World Conference will be held at 638 Paris Island Gateway, and more information is found at cbcofbeaufort.org. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're listening for the first time, this is an opportunity for us to dialogue on the only book God ever wrote. We call it the Holy Bible. And it's an opportunity for you to call in with uh, concerns, questions, challenges that you're facing in your life. And if you'd like biblical counsel, well, by the grace of God, I will do the best I can to respond to questions that you may have. And uh, all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 525-1859. We have a toll-free number because we broadcast through the Internet all around the world. And that toll-free number is 877. The call letters of our station, WAGP followed by the numbers 980-877-WAGP-980. Some people, when they call, they want to remain totally anonymous, and they'll just dictate their question. We get a lot of dictated questions every week. Some want to go on the air live. Uh, You can also email us here directly into the studio, and our email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Good morning, Rick. As always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, let's get right to it. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thank you very much for taking my call, Pastor Broger. I listen to your program all the time on the radio. I just want to say thank you for your commitment to the study of the Word of God and continuing to preach the Word of God. Well, thank you for your encouragement, brother. I appreciate that and appreciate your prayers. Yes, sir. I just had one question. I'm okay. trying to get some clarification, if I could, on First John, where it says, He who is born of God does not commit sin. And then it also says, He who is born of God cannot sin. And then in Romans, when Paul was talking about, in essence, it's not me who commits to sin, but it's the sin in me, or the sin that's in my flesh. He says, it's not me. If I do what I don't want to do, it's not me that does it, but the sin in me. And Paul says that twice. And so there's been interpretation of First John is that he who uh, is born of God does not continue to commit sin. And that's not what it says. He says he who's born of God does not commit sin. He cannot because he's born of God's Spirit. And so I'm just trying to understand what is the correct uh, interpretation of the, of that scripture. 
Okay, let, let, let's. That's a great question. Let me let me start with First John. Again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, and some have come to some, I think, false conclusions based on what we find here in First John three. Um, obviously, uh, John does not mean that when a person becomes a believer that he never sins again. We know that from the first chapter. In fact, he tells us one of the reasons that he's writing to us is that we might have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and so that our joy might be made complete. And having stated that purpose, because the purpose is fellowship, intimacy, when one becomes a believer, they establish an eternal relationship with God that is unsevered. John will say at the end of the epistle, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, think, but know for sure that you have eternal life. Eternal life and the the fact that it's mine is something that someone can know. Uh, Lay that aside. That speaks to our relationship with God. Our fellowship with God is a moment-by-moment thing, and it's broken when we sin. And so he says in the same opening chapter, this is the message we've heard from him and we announce to you that God is light. Now, the the expression of light is used in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used to uh, compare ignorance with truth. Sometimes it's used to uh, make a comparison between what's holy and what's unholy. Well, God is holy and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say... We have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we cannot say that we're walking intimately in fellowship with the Lord. And again, our relationship with God begins the moment we are saved. It's eternal. It cannot be severed. But our intimacy, our fellowship with God is a moment-by-moment thing. And this is a lesson that Jesus taught all the way back in the upper room when he washed the feet of the disciples. Uh, If you remember, there was one among them who was an unbeliever. And so he said, not all of you are clean. But he told Peter and the other men there that they needed to have their feet washed. And uh, Peter, of course, said, well, never shall you wash my feet. He said, look, if, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no participation with me. And it's a very similar parallel word to koinonia. You have no real fellowship with me. And Peter said, well, look, not just my feet. You can wash my head and hands, too. Um, and Jesus said, no, he was cleaned. Doesn't need another bath. Once bathed, always bathed. Once saved, always saved. But you get your feet dirty sometimes as you walk through this world. And Peter and John is speaking here of the same truth here. Uh, That if we say we're walking in intimacy with God and don't practice the truth, uh, well, we're deceiving ourselves. In fact, he says here in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So anyone who says, I no longer sin, I am sinlessly perfect, one, he's deceiving himself because that's not true. In fact, he'll say in verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and his word is not in us. So not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we're we're saying false things about God because God says from Genesis to Revelation that even his people sin, and that's the record of Scripture. 
of both the saved and the lost, that people do sin. But God gives his people a promise that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And again, 1 John 1, 9 is not a salvation verse. It's a fellowship verse. We're not saved by confessing our sins. If that were true, Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have just come and said, look, my father is really forgiving. And if you just ask for forgiveness, he'll forgive you and cleanse you and you'll be prepared for heaven. No, we're not saved by confessing our sins. We're saved by our faith in the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection. First John 1, 9 is given to people who are saved, not in order to get saved again, but to maintain that intimacy. So when you read First John 3, it has to be read in light of what John has already said in First John chapter 1. So he says in First John 3, for instance, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So he's talking really here about two lifestyles, a lifestyle that's bent on serving the evil one, serving the devil, and a lifestyle that's bent on serving God. And of course, this is really the difference between a saved and a lost person. The grace of God, Paul will say in Titus 2, has appeared to all men. Uh, God made a provision not just for the elect. The atonement was not just for a small group of people. It was for the whole world, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son. So the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation to all men. He has made a way of escape for all men. But he goes on in the next verse and he says, teaching us, that is those of us who have believed, Paul includes himself and all believers, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live holy and righteously in the present age. So there's a new direction that follows a believer's life. And you see this balance all the way through scripture. For instance, in Galatians 5, he says, now the deeds of the flesh, of the sinful nature are evident. And he lists them, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so forth. And he says, and things like these, just in case I missed one, and things like these, of which I have forewarned you as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, if this is someone's practice, if someone as a lifestyle lives in fornication, if someone as a lifestyle lives in adultery, if someone as a lifestyle lives in sensuality, impurity, drunkenness, then they have proof positive that they've never really been born again. Because he'll say in the verses that follow, in verse 24 of the same chapter of Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But to say that a Christian can't do these things is uh, really contradictive of what Paul has already said, because he says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Why? So that you won't carry out the desires of the sin nature. His point to the Galatian believers is that we all have the capacity to commit any kind of sin. And so we need to depend upon the Spirit of God. Um, He will write to the church at Ephesus, for instance, and he will say... um, do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. He's exhorting believers who are saved to be imitators of God, to walk in love, 
because Christ has loved us, and that these things that typify and characterize the world should not characterize us. For then he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, in light of that, because that's the state of the lost, do not be partakers with them. Because you were formerly darkness, now you're in light, and so the exhortation to walk as children of light. So again, you see this balance all the way through the New Testament, that when a person is saved, he has a new proclivity, a new desire, a new uh, direction to live for the Lord. Uh, do Christians fail? Of course. He will say in First John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But he says, if anyone sins, because Christians do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. It doesn't say we don't sin. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him. And he, in the nearest antecedent, goes back to the seed of God. And the Spirit of God is described as a seed. There are many different illusions that are given of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He's referred to as oil, as fire, as water, as seed. And when the seed of God, when God the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life, he changes you. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old life has passed away and all things have become new. And so uh, no one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. The new nature cannot sin uh, because the new nature is inhabited by the seed of God, God, the Holy Spirit. But we still have our old nature. And so he says in the next verse, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So again, there's a, a new direction, a new proclivity to do the things of God. And that's really what Paul is describing in Romans 7. And I'll be coming to Romans 7, Lord willing. At some point, we're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through Romans. We started in uh, March of this year. We're still just in the fourth chapter. But in the seventh chapter of Romans, he describes really the two natures of man, a new nature, a new proclivity that has been born of God because the seed of God lives in our new nature. And there's the old Adamic nature that we do not shed and we will not shed until the resurrection. And it's not until that point that our salvation will be made complete. So Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And when he uses the word here, flesh, the word flesh, sarks, is used in different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes, uh, like in 2 Corinthians 5, it's used to describe a worldly point of view, looking at life through the world's eyes rather than God's eyes. Uh, sometimes it's used to describe literal flesh, skin that covers your skeleton. More often than not, over 90 times in the New Testament, the word sarks is used to refer to the sin nature, 
that sin nature that we inherited from Adam that he has already described in Romans 5, such that we're born in sin, we're shaped in sin. In sin, King David will write, did my mother conceive me? So he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I cannot do, I practice the very evil thing that I do not wish. And so Paul is describing this war that, I, that, that takes place within the believer because he has a new nature. His new nature wants to please God, but his old nature still wants to do evil. And so Paul, again, in Galatians 5 says, walk by the spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the sinful nature. For the spirit is in opposition to the flesh and the flesh is in opposition to the spirit that you may not do the things that you please. And so the believer because his conscience is heightened and his uh, dead person within is regenerated, feels a tension that the unbeliever knows nothing of. And it's a heightened desire to please God, realizing he still has a sinful nature within. And so Paul's going to say, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free? Well, he's going to go on in the eighth chapter, and he's going to talk about the deliverance that comes through the inner work of the Holy Spirit as we depend upon him. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, the law could never save you because your sinful fallen nature couldn't obey it. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then he goes back through that same tension that those who live just for the flesh are evident that they are not children of God. Those who've been born again, who have the spirit living in them, they have a new desire to want to please God. But it doesn't mean the war is over or that the tension is eradicated. And so Paul will write in Colossians 2 and verse 7, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Well, by grace through faith. There came a point in your life when you admitted, God, I'm a bankrupt, helpless sinner, and there's nothing I can do to redeem myself. I put my full faith in the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection. I trust him as Savior. Well, as you've received him, so walk in him. We are to have that same attitude of dependency upon him. Because as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Jesus said, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you the branches. He who abides in me, he bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. So you meet people occasionally who say, they're pretty rare in our day, but you meet them occasionally who say, well, once you get saved, you never sin again. And I always say when I meet people like that, can I meet your spouse? I just want to get their take on it if they think you're sinless. Uh, sometimes you want to spit in their face just to see how they respond, see if the old sin nature shows itself. It will, and you follow anyone around long enough, you're going to see that they have faults and foibles just like the rest of us. So John is not contradicting himself, and he must be interpreted within his own epistle. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Thanks for standing by. We've got another live caller. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um I uh, I listen to your uh, I listen to your sermons and your and your your radio show daily, um, and you often ask the question. You know, um, as, as a matter of fact, you always ask the question: if if we were to die today, uh, are we assured that we would go to heaven? Um, I di- I didn't uh, I didn't come to faith until my mid forties, 
and uh, did plenty of sinning in that first 40-plus years, to say the least. And um, when I came to faith, I came about it on an academic level, um, read everything I could, uh, tried to do my own uh, translations, the whole nine yards. Um, and it's boiled down pretty well. Um, it, my problem is, uh, if you have not love, you're, you're a banging gong. And uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, it took me, took me almost six years to realize I even love God because I haven't had a whole lot of love in my life. And to love every brother, I have some trouble. Um, you know, if I were to die today, the fact that, that, that I don't, uh, I couldn't say that I love my, every, every single soul all the time. Is that does that just condemn me? Does that am I condemned in in my inability to to forgive just everybody? Is, is it is it because I'm young and in, in, in you know six or eight years in in, in salvation? I, and, and it concerns me greatly. Um, well, it's a good question. Let me let me respond. First of all, the number of years that you've been a Christian is not necessarily a guarantee of growth. Uh, Billy Graham said some years back that in his judgment, ninety to ninety five percent of the genuinely born again Christians the United States are still babes in Christ. And I see that very often as a pastor. Our church grows largely by conversion, but there are people who come sometimes who already know the Lord. And I'll meet them, and sometimes when we discuss uh, their spiritual history, I'll, I'll find out that they've been Christians 10, 15, 20, 30 years sometimes. But as we talk and dialogue, I sometimes discover they're still babes in Christ. They haven't grown. Um, I, I have people sometimes who... Uh, come to our church, and one of the things that we do is we plug people in initially to the discovery class. We we have like 17 adult Bible fellowships that meet on Sunday morning, and we're trying to uh, follow the illustration and principles taught in the book of Acts that as the church grows larger, it grows smaller. And the way we try to um, give people the opportunity to interact and fellowship are through our ABFs, which really become a church within the church. But we have one class that's ongoing, never ends, and it has really three groups of people in it. Uh, Largely new Christians, usually 60 to 70% of the people in that class at any given time are brand new believers. The other two groups are folks who maybe uh, have been saved a long time, but no one ever discipled them. And so in Billy Graham's assessment, they've stayed babes in Christ. And the third group are maybe some people who had grown, but then they backslid and got out of fellowship with the Lord. Uh, I also send into that group people who I'm counseling, doing marriage counseling. And sometimes they'll object and say, well, I don't know that I'm going to, I really want to go to that class, Pastor. I, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Isn't that for new Christians? And I'll tell them, listen, if you understood the principles that are being enumerated in that class, you wouldn't be in my office today. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Not the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. And he gives those nine qualities because the degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. And Jesus, when he described the fruit of the Spirit, he described it as um, fruit, more fruit, much fruit. There's a progressive dimension as we grow up in Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, you shouldn't be discouraged in comparing yourself maybe to someone who's Uh, walked in the Spirit for a much longer period of time. But uh, sometimes, though, we need to do some personal assessment. 
because sometimes while we may have been Christians five or six years, we just haven't grown much because we haven't had a good foundational backing. We know enough to be saved, but we don't understand the principles to obey the command that Peter gives to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to be saved by grace. It's quite another thing to grow in grace. And that's the function of the discovery class. It's 35 weeks long and it's set up so that someone can begin any week they want And it's on kind of a rotating curriculum. And I think it's now online, not the handouts, uh, but the the messages are online at searchthescriptures.org. But it's much better to come to the class if someone's local because they can dialogue and hear questions and interact and and so forth. But I appreciate the fact that you're concerned. Oh, I want to grow further. And again, no, you're not condemned because uh, Paul's passage that you referenced in your question this morning from 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, That's not written to lost people, but to save people. It's written in the context of uh, chapters 12 and 14. 13 is sandwiched between 12 and 14, and the whole subject is spiritual gifts. And the problem was is that when the Corinthians got together— Though all the spiritual gifts were represented, they weren't being exercised in love. So a Christian can indeed not love as he should. Um, and again, we don't have the capability in and of ourselves. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Uh, but as we walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And he lists the desires of the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So again, we have to learn to be spirit-filled believers. I mean, we spend like five weeks of the 35 weeks in the discovery class just talking about what is our responsibility from a human side What must we do to depend upon the Spirit and walk in His grace moment by moment? Look, some people are hard to love, and you have to love them by faith, and you have to, Jesus said, love even your enemies. So again, we don't have that capability in ourselves. so we need to learn to depend upon the Holy Spirit to do that. Anyway, um, there is the message online that is kind of a good capsulized Uh, version of those five weeks that is on our website, and it's entitled, Have You Ever Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? And I think that might be helpful maybe to some of our listeners today. Let's go to the next question, Rick. I appreciate that caller. We have indeed another live caller standing by. Good morning. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you very much. Uh, Is this Pastor Brogan? Yes, it is. Thanks for calling today. Thank you. Pastor Brogan, for 30 years I've been saved. I've heard this scripture talk so many times, and nobody's ever explained it. So I thought that you could, because I listen to you a lot. Matthew 9, 16, 19, uh, where God said he would give us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And why not the keys to the kingdom of heaven? And what are the keys of the kingdom? I, nobody's ever they always teach it, and they never tell me what it is. Well, let me see if I can respond. Remember, they're in a place called Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, which is an interesting place for Jesus to ask this question, because it's a place where um, a plethora of so-called gods 
were represented. I've stood there in Caesarea Philippi before, and there's all these uh, ancient statues from the day of Christ and uh, idols that are embossed into the walls of, uh, of that cliff. And, and it's in that place that Jesus asked the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, referring to the apostles, well, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they're giving the assessment of the crowd. Uh, they're saying, well, you know, John the Baptist, he, he's, he must be Messiah. No, he wasn't Messiah. He's just the one who prepares the road for Messiah to come. Some said, well, you know, he's, he's Elijah, because uh, the Bible speaks in the book of Malachi of, a, of the second coming of Elijah that is connected not with the first coming of Messiah, but actually the second coming. But very often passages in the Old Testament bled together both first and second comings, and people didn't always know how to separate them. Like Isaiah will say, for a child will be born into us, and uh, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Well, a child is born, his name is going to be called Mighty God, and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. The child's been born, but the government has not yet rested on Messiah's shoulders. He hasn't yet come to rule and reign with a, a rod of iron. And so in that one verse, you have both comings. Uh, if you remember when Jesus went into the uh, synagogue in Nazareth, and they handed him the prophet Isaiah, and uh, the reading for the day, uh, providentially, was in our Bibles from Isaiah chapter 61, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me uh, to bring good news to the afflicted and to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there. And in Luke 4, he goes on to record, and he said, this has been fulfilled today. Well, if you keep reading, there's a whole lot more that deal with the second coming of Messiah, the day of vengeance of our God and so forth that hasn't yet happened. So they thought, well, maybe he's Elijah or one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, and he says, thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so that was the right answer. And Jesus reminded him where that answer came from. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. My father who's in heaven, he's the one who revealed it to you, Peter. And that's true, really, of um, any of us coming to know the Lord and uh, acknowledging who he is. Uh, one earlier caller said, well, I read everything that I could. And that was good. But the only reason he read everything that he could to find out about God is because God put that in his heart to do. He wouldn't have done that on his own. Paul will say by his doing, we are in Christ Jesus. It's a work of God. So he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the, the, the gates of death, of Sheol, shall not overpower it. Now, there's a play on words in the original. In most uh, English translations that have some kind of footnotes or marginal notes, when there's a play on words in the Greek, uh, because English is limited, Greek is a very picturesque and very precise language, is that they'll often give the nuance of the original. And so it reads in the Greek, for I say to you that you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. Now, the Roman Catholics in the fourth century 
had the uh, Old Testament translated into Latin because Latin was the language of the scholar in that day. And so people uh, read the Bible in Latin. I, I say the Roman Catholics, Jerome translated it, but it later became the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think they were in existence yet. I think you're probably looking at the mid-6th century before you can really define the Catholic Church as we have it today with this successive line of popes. Now, they will retroact uh, this line of popes from whom they think the first was Peter all the way to the present day. But they do it on the basis of that translation that was done in the 4th century by Jerome. And in the Latin Vulgate, which becomes the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church, there is not the same uh, nuance that you have in the Greek New Testament that God gave us the scriptures in. So in the Latin, it would read, you are Peter, and it means a rock, and upon this rock, they would say, namely, Peter, Christ has built his church. And so they would say that the church is built on Peter, that Peter is the first pope, and he's given that power. Uh, But again, in the original, it says, you are a stone, you're Petros, you're just a stone. And upon this Petra, upon myself, and the word Petra in Greek means a bedrock, a foundational stone, a cornerstone. Uh, upon this cornerstone, uh, up, upon this foundational stone, upon myself, I will build my church. And again, even if someone didn't know Greek, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Uh, Peter himself will speak to the fact that the cornerstone is the Lord Jesus and that we are just living stones. And Peter never portrayed himself as a pope. Like when he writes in First Peter 5, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. If Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. Um, no, the, the foundation is Christ. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds upon the foundation Christ, with, and then he goes on and he describes. So the foundation is the Lord Jesus. And that's clear from the original. And again, I, the reason I belabor this is because it's important as to how you're going to interpret what follows. So then he says in the next verse, I give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter is given some authority. He's given some keys. What are keys used for? Well, to to open doors. What privilege was Peter given by Christ? He was given the privilege to open the doors. Who is the very first man to stand up on the birthday of the church to preach to thousands and thousands of Jews? Peter. Peter opened the door to the Jewish people. Who is the first people to preach to the Gentiles, to see the very first Gentiles one to faith in the Lord Jesus? It's recorded in Acts 10. It was Peter. Now Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, but Peter opened that door to the Gentiles. Now, understand uh, this authority of binding and loosing is not exclusively given to Peter. Because he will later say, truly I say to you, and there the you is plural. We would say in English today, y'all. And this is one benefit of um, the old English in that there's a singular you, thou, and there is a plural you, which is translated you. 
um, in here, it's plural in Greek. I say to you, y'all, that if two of you agree upon anything on earth, it shall be done for you. Uh, for where two or more have gathered in my name, it will be done. And it's in that context that he says in Matthew eighteen eighteen, truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So the keys to the kingdom were authority that was given. And Peter was given a special authority. You know, all the apostles were great men of God. Within the apostles, there was the inner three, Peter, James, and John. But Peter did not have some exclusive leadership. Because, uh, for instance, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, uh, we see James, the half-brother of Christ, giving leadership. Uh, Paul is on equal footing with Peter. In fact, on one occasion, Paul rebukes Peter. It's recorded for us in the book of Galatians chapter 2. And so the keys of the kingdom are keys to open doors, and Peter is given the great privilege to open doors. He was given the privilege of opening the door of faith to the Jews on Pentecost, again, Acts 2, then to the Samaritans. You can read about that in Acts 8, and then finally to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And clearly from Matthew 18, 18, the other apostles shared this authority, and uh, Paul is also seen as opening doors to Gentiles as well. So I hope that helps and we'll get you started. Let's go to the next question. I think we have another caller that's waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, the question I have is, I, I believe it's John 19, where Jesus and Pilate are having the discourse. And Pilate's says to Jesus, but he wouldn't answer him. He goes, don't you realize I have the power to either crucify you or release you? Right. And Jesus says to him, you would have no power unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has sent me has committed greater sin. Is he speaking of Judas or God? Um, He's speaking here of Judas. He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. It was Judas that in essence, through his leadership, delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And uh, he's already covered that in the the 18th chapter. But again, uh, you're right in one sense in that God is sovereign through this whole process. Um, Let let me quote Peter here for just a second. On the day of uh, Pentecost, uh, he stands up and he's preaching to thousands of Jews. And he said, this man referring to the Lord Jesus, actually this this or this one in the New American Standard, they put man in italics. It's not in the, in the Greek, but he's talking about Christ. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this or this one, or you could say this man, delivered up how? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up. So again, he's really speaking here of, of God's sovereignty, that God is, is sovereign through this whole thing. Later on, when he preaches the next great sermon recorded in Acts 4, he said, for in this city, referring to Jerusalem, for in this city, there were gathered together against thy holy servant, Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius, or Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. 
So on the one hand, he indicts the Jews for the crucifixion. Uh, in Acts 4, he indicts Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, um, all doing whatever God's hand predestined to occur. So yes, uh, Judas, you know, he, he delivered Christ up, but only by the sovereign predetermined plan of God. Uh, there was a film that came out some years ago on the crucifixion of Christ, and it created a big stir in terms of, well, you know, these are just Christians coming back and blaming the Jewish people again for, you know, the crucifixion of Christ. And so, you know, who, who crucified Christ? Well, the Bible says he, he died at the hands of the godless Romans. He died at the hands of the Gentiles. He died at the hands of the Jews. And he died at the hand of God Almighty. And he died at your hands and my hands because he was pierced through for our iniquity. So the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. So God was involved in the crucifixion of his son. So God's sovereign, but don't miss the point to Pilate. Pilate thinks he's a Mr. Showboat, that he has some authority, and Jesus just puts him in place. It's the same truth that 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 teaches, that no one has any authority, not even the Hitlers of this world, but what has been allowed by God to unfold and to take place, a sovereign God who's in control, who's not wringing his hands over the current president of Iran and his threats towards Israel because God is in control and he knows what he is about. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I know we've had dozens of questions emailed in this morning. I don't know if we can hit any of those. Yes. Uh, Let's go to one um, that's somewhat uh, contemporary. This person writes, I know of Bible-believing Christians That endorsed Mitt Romney, and I am completely shocked. I've studied Mormonism extensively and find it to be in complete opposition to the gospel of Christ and everything that Christianity stands for with its polyistic, uh, polytheistic beliefs, rather. Uh, And I am surprised Christians would endorse a person affiliated with this uh, deceitful religion. Though I disagree with our president on many issues, he still maintains a Christian confession as our prior presidents have, and believe as Christians we must not let Mormonism in the front door of our country. Mormonism is a truly wolf in sheep's clothing. Would you agree, or am I in left field? Well, you're in both fields, so let let, let me see if I can respond. Uh, You're right, Mormonism is a false religion, so let's not make any qualms about that and try to make it look Christian, though they bear the title the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. There's nothing true and all the orthodox historical doctrines of Christianity that's associated with Mormonism. Uh, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. That's a pretty big one. Uh, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty big one. They deny the infallibility and the inerrancy of the 66 books of the Bible. The only, they say the only book that's infallible and can be trusted is uh, the Book of Mormon, which is a collection of 17 books. Um, and they say that the Bible has been corrupted and is no longer reliable. Uh, They deny the virgin birth as it's described in the Bible. Uh, Brigham Young said the way the virgin birth took place, and he was a living prophet, and so when he spoke, uh, much like a pope would speak ex cathedra, he spoke in an official capacity, so it becomes Mormon doctrine. He said God the Father had a human body, which the Bible says he doesn't, God is spirit in reference to the Father. The only member of the Trinity that ever incarnated himself was Jesus Christ. But they say God the Father came down, had a sexual relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus was conceived. 
So again, you know, um, it, it's filled with heresy. They deny salvation by grace through faith. They say that a man is saved by faith and works, that it's not grace alone through faith alone. So every major historical doctrine of Christianity, they deny. And again, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be true. The Book of Mormon says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Well, the Old Testament prophet said Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that's what the New Testament records. And that's what history records. Who's right? Well, the, the Bible is. Uh, the Book of Mormon teaches that the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to happen in Missouri. In Missouri. That's what they say. And when you ask them how that happens, they say, well, the Teutonic plates of the world shifted such that the true Jerusalem is actually now in Missouri. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Always good to be informed on things like that. So listen, Mitt Romney is a committed Mormon. Uh, now, let me just say this. Do I think that Barack Obama is a born-again Christian? <laughs> of course not. How could I think that he was a born-again Christian? There are a lot of people who confess Christianity. How could I believe a president who's in favor of murdering little babies be in favor, of, call himself a born-again Christian? Listen, a natural man, an unregenerate mind, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And so, you know, people ask me sometimes, well, you're a Republican or a Democrat. Well, it depends. It depends on the individual. There are some Democrats that are more representative of God's values and biblical truth than some Republicans are. So it's not a matter of being a, you know, a Republicrat or a Democrat. I'm a Christocrat. I I want to represent Christ and his values as best I can. Our president, when he was a senator, backed President Clinton on partial birth abortion. Listen, that's a wicked thing. You know what partial birth abortion is? My, it's it's just, it's it's horrible. Um, And he's still in favor of abortion as a woman's right. That's an evil That's a huge scar on our land, and I know maybe we don't talk enough about it, but listen, there's still over a million babies a year that are being slaughtered in the womb. If life starts at conception, as the Bible says, then it's human life from the moment of conception to take a child in the womb, whether the child's three weeks old or three weeks before birth, both which are legal in this country, it is wrong. It is murder. He's also come out in the uh, last several months, saying that he's in favor of homosexual unions. Now, when he ran the first time, I think because he wanted votes, he said that marriage is between a man and a woman. He wasn't opposed to civil unions, but marriage was between a man and a woman, period. Of course, his vice president, who also is in favor of abortion, who also uh, is in favor of homosexual marriage, he came out and said, oh, I, I, think, uh, I think homosexual people ought to be able to get married. So it kind of put Barack in a corner, and so you know he came out a week later and he agreed. Look, that, that's just evil. That's evil. And if you don't believe it, listen to my sermon, is it okay to be gay? It's going to lead to the destruction of this nation. So sometimes when you go into a voting booth with your conscience as a believer, it's not an issue of Republican versus Democrat. And people think, well, you know, the, the Republican Party is, you know, a party that's just built on, you know, fiscal issues. Well, maybe there is a lot of that, and I don't deny it. 
But that's not why I would vote, say, for a Republican over a Democrat or a Democrat over a Republican. I would vote on the basis of my conscience. I'm going to vote for the man who best represents God's values. Uh, Yeah, I don't get excited about Romney being the president of the United States because I do think it will lend a lot of credibility to the Mormon movement. And it will put it in a broader sense on the map, legitimizing it. And it is a false movement. But on the other hand, neither do I get excited about a president who's going to continue to advocate homosexuality is okay, who might appoint Supreme Court justices who will ultimately make it the law of the land in all 50 states, who will, who will if that becomes the case, they will eventually take away the tax-exempt status of born-again churches and churches in America that don't back homosexual marriage, and it will probably become uh, a hate crime of sorts where if a pastor stands up in a pulpit and speaks against it, that that will be considered hate speech. Listen, people say, oh, that's extreme. Really? Uh, Forty years ago, homosexuality was against the law in all 50 states. And Paul said that laws are to be written against perjurers, murderers, homosexuals. That's what the Bible says. Laws are to be written against such perverted, dangerous behavior. Now we're writing laws in favor of such behavior. So it's a matter, I think, of choosing the lesser of two evils in some situations. Now, some would say I'm wrong on that. They would say, well, then, then, then don't vote or vote for, you know, some other candidate. There's a third party candidate, I think the Constitutional Party, and someone told me recently they're going to vote for that person. Um, I, you know, again, I I think there's a lot at stake here, and that is a thrown away vote. And they would say, no, it's a, it's a vote of my conscience. Well, again, it's between you and God when you go into that, that booth. But don't vote Republican just because, you know, your parents were Republican and you've always been Republican. Don't vote Democrat just because that's what your your family has already done. Vote based on biblical principle. And there's less and less reason for God to bless this country. And we're, we're moving further and faster away from God like we've never moved. And, and this president, whom I pray for, I do pray for our president. And you should pray for him, too. You can complain about him, but you're still supposed to pray for him. That's what God commands us to do in First Timothy 2. But he has carried us further into evil than any prior president. And I don't make any qualms for saying that. Anyway, let's go to the next caller or question. All right. Uh, this is also a timely question. Uh, this right uh, listener called in and says, uh, Last week there was a claim that a fragment of papyrus from the fourth century, quotes Jesus referring to his wife. We know that Christ uh, was never married. So how do you explain this to those who believe that this shows that he was? Well, there's uh, scores of books that were written long after the Bible was completed. There's the Gospel according to Bartholomew. There's the Gospel according to St. Thomas, which was a Gnostic work done around 135 A.D. Uh, there is what we call pseudepigrapha. Works pseudo means false. Pigrapho, we get our word graphe, the false writings. And so there are all kinds of false writings that came after the Bible was completed. There are false writings that came while the Bible was being written. 
Um, and so that's why God calls us to be discerning. Paul, when he writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it were from us. And so there were people who would stand up and they would prophesy and they say, thus saith the Lord. Um, And Paul says, don't be disturbed by that. Don't be disturbed by someone who comes in and says, I have a message from God Almighty. And don't be disturbed by saying, here's a new letter from the Apostle Paul. When When he writes to the Galatians, he says, look, here's the distinguishing mark that's on all my letters. Even if a person used an amanuensis, a secretary to whom, through whom he dictated, Paul would put his distinguishing mark on every letter. And two, remember, people don't determine what's inspired and what's not. Uh, the church didn't determine what the canon of Scripture was. They just recognized it. And there are tests for canonicity. And so I did a uh, course that lasted about a year on bibliology, and one of the sections in the course was the uh, how we have our canon of Scripture. And we dealt with everything from why the Roman Catholics adopted some of the books between the Testaments and why uh, the Jews did not, why evangelical Christians to this day do not, and so forth. And, and what were the tests for canonicity? Uh, how do we recognize what God wrote and what he didn't write? So, no, I'm not surprised that there's um, one, some, some note. And whether they're even referring to the, the, the same Yeshua is up for great debate. Under, understand Yeshua uh, in Jesus, Iesus in English, Jesus. I mean, that's his name that was as common in the first century is John. So there's graves, there's uh, sarcophaguses, there's uh, writings that contain that name. It's not necessarily even the same Jesus. So, but, but, but lay that aside, understand there's a lot of false writings that came long after the Bible was finished. And I'm sure that that's probably what this is, if it's even referring to the same Jesus, and it may be referring to a whole nother family. So um, I could explore that and run down that a little bit more, even in terms of the credibility of the manuscripts. Uh, The Harvard guy who found it, most people aren't giving him any credence. But people who don't want to believe, they'll find a reason to. Anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. We've got about a minute and a half. Let's see if we can uh, get this one real quick. Uh, What do you think of Ayn Rand and the craze currently even among Christians surrounding the book Atlas Shrugged? Um, I'm not in favor of it. You know, it it is, as you describe it, abhorrent, narcissistic, uh, totally opposite to Christ's sacrifice for us. So why would I be in favor of it? Of course I'm not. So um, anyway, uh, you know, why put money in the pocket of an author who's a downright apostate and someone who is going to be antithetical to Christian views? I I don't want to give the guy a dime. Well, we're out of time for today. We're glad that you could be with us for the Bible line. I hope it's been some help to you. Uh, God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday at this same time. And if uh, we didn't get to your question and there was a lot that were dictated today, God willing, maybe next week we can. I hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you as you walk with him.